please turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 69. Uh, last minute changes and all. I thought we'd just revisit uh, one of the psalms that we've looked at before, but it's super encouraging, uh, and maybe even more so today than when we looked at it a few years ago uh, for some of us. Uh, if you're using a church Bible, you'll find that starting on page 482. It is not a short psalm, but a wonderful psalm. And we're going to start by just reading the first 15 verses uh, to get us going this morning. Beloved saints, we're told that all scripture does not come by the will of man, but as, as they were carried along by God's spirit. And that means this is an infallible, perfect word that is meant to comfort us and teach us. And so let us give our attention to the reading of it. To the choir master, according to the lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What did I steal and must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let those who hope in you be... uh, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and drunkards make songs about me. But as for you, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. We'll stop at that point for now. Let us ask God's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you and to see you revealed within the scriptures. And so we ask that you would open to us the beauty of your word. Open our eyes and our hearts to behold the king of glory. And we ask that you would grant us the faith we need to receive all that we find in your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I heard someone say once, uh, yeah, I spent five years there one week. Uh, (laughs) That was his description of an incredibly boring place. And it made me laugh because I knew exactly uh, what he was talking about. Unpleasant times, they just seem to drag on. They seem disproportionately long. 
But a week, a fun week, can go by in the blink of an eye. A week of waiting for a doctor's call with test results can drag on forever. A couple of months on summer vacation seems like a few days, but a couple of months of chemotherapy? The first few weeks of new love are a blur. The first few weeks of mourning the loss of the love of your life and eternity. I can think of the hardest time in my life and how the clock slowed to a crawl. Days dragged on. What would have seemed like a blip in any other season of life seemed like an absolute eternity. And I'm sure you've been there. And if you haven't, you will be one day. Because no one escapes it. It's just not possible. And perhaps you're there right now. The question isn't, will it come? The question is, how are we to understand those times when they do? How are we to find comfort in the midst of them? Because where you look for comfort in the midst of hard times tells a lot about you and what matters. In Psalm 69, it's written precisely with those questions. And it it points to our Heavenly Father's love as the source of comfort and assurance while we wait for His deliverance. While we wait. And so, as we look at the psalm this morning... All I really want to try to draw, it's, it's a rather long psalm, but its message is simple, and it's this. The unfailing love of your Heavenly Father gives you confidence that pain will not have the final word. The unfailing love of your Heavenly Father is what gives you confidence that pain will not have the last and final word for you if you belong to Him. That's really what we want to look at as we uh, see this very uh, raw and honest psalm. Because saying that pain will not have the final word does not mean it will have no word or no voice in your life. Pain has a lot to say. And it certainly finds its voice in this psalm. Uh, And let's be honest, a lot of psalms talk about pain. It's not unique to this one. And that's because pain is a big part of our lives. Much of our... uh, mental and emotional energy in life is spent trying to make sense out of pain in our lives. Because so many things cause pain. Family, sickness, loneliness, fear, political upheaval, limitations, grief, unmet expectations, betrayal, I'm sure we could add to that list, but there are so many things that cause us pain. And one thing that can be said about pain is that that everyone experiences it. They, They say only two things in life are guaranteed, right? Death and taxes. And I would add a third to that list. Pain. No one avoids it. The best we can hope for in this life are seasons of relief, but pain will come. It's the reality. And for David, he expresses that pain so clearly in verses 4 and 5. He 
says his enemies are tormenting him. They attack him with lies. We haven't read it yet, but verse 21, he'll say, they, they give me poison for food, and, and to quench my thirst, they give me sour wine. It's not just simply that they're on opposite ends of a political spectrum. There's something personal about these attacks. Who gives poison for food or sour wine to someone who's thirsty? What could possibly make someone take pleasure in the torment of another? The only thing that drives people to do something like that is insecurity. People take pleasure in the suffering of someone whom they see as a threat. Because they think if he's suffering, he can't be a threat. There's no need to fear him. Laughing at the suffering of of another is is a cover for fear. And so what is it that has made these people fear David? What's made them? Enemies, he tells us in verse 7, it's, it's friendship with God. It, he, it's for God's sake that he's bearing this reproach. He's hated because he's chosen to be God's friend. Verse 8, even his own family has turned against him. They hate him because he delights in going to God's house for worship, verse 9. They hate him because he has humbled himself before the one who made him and admitted, verse 10, that he is a sinner who needs grace, who needs help. And so the question is, why would anybody be upset at someone for doing those things, for worshiping and and crying out for forgiveness? Such brokenness Such humility is offensive. Because the world wants to believe everyone's basically good. We can do anything we want as long as we set our minds to it. And when somebody stands up and says, not me, I need help, I'm broken, I need mercy, that violates the communal wisdom, the communal narrative. And that person has to be cast out. Even the town drunks mock him, he says. Beloved, if being unpopular is one of your life goals, you can follow David's example. And you don't even need to be in people's faces about it. Just choose to go to worship instead of your friends to a social engagement. Just admit that you need forgiveness from God and that you don't deserve heaven. Just dare to say, I don't believe I'm good enough. I don't deserve heaven. I need mercy. Your friends will flee from you like you have the plague. Because when you say those things, it's like a spotlight on their sin and their need for grace. And so the only solution for them, short of repentance, (laughs) is to vilify you, mock you, marginalize you, minimize you. 
And that's what they're doing to David. And so he prays for rescue. And that's really what this psalm is all about. Uh, his description of the situation is tragic. Tragic. He, he says he's simultaneously surrounded by water and parched with thirst. <laughs> he's drowning and dying of thirst at the same time. It's like nature's mocking him. The waves keep coming. Every time he thinks his foot finds purchase, he loses it, and the waters cover his face. They choke him. And he wonders, how long can he tread water before the depths make their claim on him? And so he makes a request. He says, deliver me from sinking into the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deepest waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. David's saying, Lord, don't let my suffering have the final word. Don't let my enemies win. Don't let the depths consume me. There has to be more. There has to be salvation. There has to be hope. There has to be rescue. And he believes this, that there has to be these things because God is just and God is good. And if God is just and God is good, then injustice can't have the final word. Because because woven into this psalm, into this lament, is is an acknowledgement that the suffering he's dealing with is unjust. His afflictors, he says in verse 4, hate him without cause. They're they're making up lies about him. They're not actually accusing him of wrongs he's done. This isn't a a court of law. He's he's being faced to pay debts that he hasn't rung up, restore things he hasn't stolen. I think we all know what that might look like in life. When you're suffering, not for something you've done wrong. You've been faithful, but your spouse betrays you. You exercise, you eat all the right things, you do everything right, and yet still, cancer finds you. You obey every traffic law, but a drunk driver hits you. You work hard, but times get tough and your boss decides that his son will keep his job and you'll lose yours. You try to help someone, but they take advantage of you. And you're left with a total car, a pile of debt. You co-sign for a loan and then they run. Or you offer faithful words to a friend and they accuse you of being mean. It's not that David's innocent. It's not that he's without sin. But how he's being treated is unfair it's unjust because he's he's being punished for things he hasn't done and he knows that injustice angers his god and so towards the end of the psalm he he prays for justice he says don't let them get away with it let the poisoners be poisoned bring bring justice to bear these these are david's two prayers in this psalm rescue me And don't let justice be silenced. 
And so here's the confidence of God's people. As certain as pain is in life, so too is the assurance that God will bring restoration to his people and to his creation. So let's read the final uh, verses, verses 16 through 36. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount pain of those whom you have wounded. And to them punishment, add to them punishment upon punishment. Make, may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the books of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. For you you who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. So what David asked for in verses 14 and 15 that we read at the beginning is reflected now in the close of the psalm. God will save Zion. He will build cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. In other words, everything broken will be fixed. Everything stolen will be restored. Everything torn down will be rebuilt. Everything defiled will be made clean. Everyone who has died in the Lord will be raised to new life. That's the unshakable confidence of God's people. Restoration, salvation, glory. It's all coming. See, there are no maybes, there are no possibilities, there are no mights when it comes to God's plan for the future. For God, the future is as certain as the past. And he has revealed to us his plan in his word. The only thing he hasn't shared with us is the when. And so it's not just death and taxes and pain that are certain and guaranteed. 
The future is certain. It's unshakable and it's glorious. That doesn't mean everyone will be in heaven. It doesn't mean that everyone will benefit. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, if there is a a heaven, I'm certain I'll go there. I treat people as I want to be treated. I work hard. I don't cheat on my taxes. That's how you're thinking. You're not listening to this psalm and you're not listening to God's voice. Because in the psalm and in God's word, there are two categories, two groups that divide all of humanity. And it's not the good and the bad, the honest and the corrupt. There are only two categories, friends of God and friends of the world. To be a friend of God is to be estranged from the world. And that's made abundantly clear in the different ways that David prays for himself and for his enemies. For his enemies, he appeals to God's justice. Give them no acquittal, verse 27. Offer them no mercy. Deal with them only as justice requires. In other words, David's saying, throw the book at them. Because when it comes to the end, when it comes to the last day, when you stand before the one who created you, the last thing you ever want is what you deserve. Because God is perfectly just. And that means he requires absolute perfection. Because think about the person who commits one murder and says, but think about all the people I didn't kill. Any sin against God is like that. It's a violation of his perfect righteousness. One sin. One failure to love him as he deserves. To worship him as he is due. To obey him as is fitting. Forfeits any claim on heaven. Of course, we're not worried about one failure, are we? Each of us has mountains of them. And that's why David is so certain that those who reject God will not escape justice. Because God is just. Perfectly just. That is the basis of his confidence that they will not escape forever. It's not in his own power. It's in God's justice. But his, so that's his prayer for the enemies. Let, let Act justly with them. But his prayer for himself is not based upon his confidence that God is just. Verse 13, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Verse 16, a few verses later, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me. Let your salvation, verse 29, O God, set me on high. For David, he he doesn't plead for justice. He he pleads for mercy and grace, for salvation and love, kindness. Because at at the beginning, he confessed that uh, not only does he have his share of sin, but he confessed, God, you know it all. David's under no delusion here that he somehow deserves heaven. He doesn't presume that God will let him in because he's one of the good guys. His hope, his only hope is for mercy 
and grace and forgiveness. So just as he invoked God's justice for his enemies, he invokes God's loving kindness, his mercy for himself and all those who choose friendship with God. See, it's God's unfailing love, his, his unfailing faithfulness, his, his absolute dedication to his people that gives David any confidence. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's love cannot fail to rescue his people. That, that perfect love, that unfailing love of God was shown when, when his son came down into the world, Jesus Christ. He came into this world <clears throat> knowing that his justice is perfect and must be satisfied and that his love cannot fail, God was left with only one option. He would have to come and suffer all that his people deserved in their place. He would allow himself to be made to restore what he did not steal to pay a debt that was not his own. And that being the case, it's no surprise that this psalm, Psalm 69, is quoted or alluded to many times in the New Testament to talk about the work of Jesus. When preparing his disciples for his upcoming betrayal and murder, he quoted verse 4 saying, but the word that is written in our law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Three of the Gospels record that while hanging on the cross, he acknowledged his thirst and his mockers gave him sour wine to drink. At his trial, the evidence marshaled against him was that he cleansed the temple, quoting verse 9, zeal for my father's house has consumed me. In reflecting upon the sacrificial death of Jesus, the Apostle Paul quotes verse 7, says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The love of God, the perfect, amazing love of God was made clear in his willingness to endure the pain of this psalm in order to bring about the glorious end that this psalm proclaims awaits his people. He endured its pain in order to bring about its glorious end. The only way to rescue his people was to suffer, not just alongside of them, but in ways that they could never suffer and survive. He willingly paid our debt. He, he restored what he did not steal. He paid what we owed. That's love. That is love. That's the love he's shown us. This is the greatness of his mercy the greatest proof of God's love for us. When you're suffering, enduring pain, affliction, where do you look for comfort? Do you rely on your own strength? Do you simply look for a change in circumstances? Or do you find comfort in the conviction that your heavenly father loves you and sent his son to pay your debt? 
I think we have to ask ourselves, why is it easier to resonate with the laments of this psalm than the confidence in future glory? Why is it easier to identify with the pain of this psalm than the comfort of this psalm? Why are we more certain of earthly pain than we are of heavenly joy? Perhaps it's because we know pain by experience and future glory only by promise. But that makes it no less real, no less certain, because for God, the future is as certain as the past, fixed and unchangeable. If we're honest, our, our struggle is with waiting. We're not good at it. It's hard. Sometimes an afternoon feels like a week. A week feels like a month and a month like a year. Hard times seem to drag on disproportionately long. That clock, it slows down to a crawl. What would have seemed like a blip in any other season of life seems like an absolute eternity. We struggle to wait. We struggle to endure because waiting is hard. And David gets it. Look at verse 3. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Waiting's hard, but no one escapes it. And perhaps you're there right now. Where can you look for comfort? The unfailing love of your heavenly Father gives you confidence that pain will not have the final word. Believing that will give you confidence to pray with David in verse 13. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. How much confidence... In God's goodness, does it take to pray not right now, but at an acceptable time? Answer me. That's hard. Not yet does not mean never. The only thing that can give you strength to wait is confidence in what the future holds. And the only thing that can give you confidence there is the unfailing love of God. That love was revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus because the only thing that can compel him to surrender his life is love. But we see with him what awaits us. Death did not have the final word because Jesus rose from the dead. Life triumphed over death, joy over pain, but not immediately. He had to wait three days in the grave. And as the disciples waited those three days, you know what their questions would have been. Would he be abandoned to the grave? Would his promise that he would rise again fail? But his promises never fail. You might feel today like you're right there with Jesus. The pain of Friday has turned to the waiting of Saturday. And it's then that you need to remember Sunday is coming. 
Because if you belong to Jesus Christ, the grave cannot win. The future is as set as the past. It's that confidence that can allow you to worship God even while you wait. When you believe that this world has nothing to offer and that you are loved by your Heavenly Father, you will be consumed with zeal for His house and you will delight in coming to worship Him. You will praise His name with songs of thanks. And you can do so knowing that He is pleased with your worship more than all the gifts you could bring. Look what David says. You don't need bowls. You don't need. You just need my praise. And know that when you when you draw near to God with humility of heart, that, that He revives you. He hears those who are in need, and He never despises His own people. This is the comfort that belongs to those who humbly draw near to the God of perfect love. That love this morning is made visible for us. I, I love how, how the psalm says, the enemies have their table where they set out poisonous food and sour wine. But God tells us he prepares his table for us in the presence of our enemies where he refreshes us while we wait even so that our cup overflows. The Lord's Supper is meant to remind us that we belong to him and that we are not alone in this world. And we are not alone as we wait. The Supper reminds you that Jesus has paid your debt and reminds you that there is a day of feasting coming. In other words, the bread and the wine before us are a visible picture of your God's love for you. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this reminder that as certain as pain is, so too is the assurance of eternal joy for those who belong to you. Teach us not to look to ourselves for comfort, to not simply depend upon changing circumstances, but to hear your promises, to drink them in, and to be satisfied that for you, the future is as fixed as the past. For you are our eternal comfort, we confess. Amen.